Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to stand before you today and begin a new set of sermons in which we are going to be turning to the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. So I invite you to take the Bible that you have there with you and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, where we will look at the first three verses this morning. As you're turning there, let me just share with you that I'm really excited on your behalf because next Sunday, uh, Roman will be running up here and uh, he will be delivering a message to you. He'll be preaching to you, um, Lord willing, on the second commandment. I'll be covering the first commandment. And then while I'm talking about our preaching schedule, two weeks from today is Father's Day And there are four different men within our church that will be sharing a testimony to you. Uh, It's been a while since we've done this, but often these are among the most meaningful services that we have all year round. So on Father's Day, we'll be hearing from four different men. And then this is just kind of hot off the press as of yesterday. Three weeks from today, we have an evangelist whose name is Jeremy Frazier that'll be with us on the Sunday, the 25th. And he travels around the country with his team. And I believe he is um, getting his uh, doctorate from Master's Seminary there in California. But he is serving up at Northland Camp during this summer. He'll be up there for a few weeks. And so we're like, well, while you're up there and you're close, would you like to come down for a Sunday? And so he has agreed to come down on the 25th of this month, and we'll be getting to you more details about that in the coming weeks. But mark your calendars. I think we have a very exciting month and a very exciting summer for you. Well, let us consider now Exodus chapter 20. This is what we refer to as the Ten Commandments. I want to read to you the first three verses here. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you shall have no other gods before me. Father, as we consider this first commandment and the law itself, I pray that we would see this as not just to be applied to a society in general, but we would see that these are your very words for us individually. And I pray that you would strike this message to our hearts and help us to look at this as a mirror to examine our own hearts and our own lives to say, are there gods in our life that are before you? And if so, what are they? And may we confess those and rid ourselves of those in returning to you, our great rescuer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think of the Ten Commandments, it's, it's very helpful for us because it's really the basics. It helps us to understand who is God and what are God's ways. We could kind of boil down the scriptures to these ten different commandments and see this is what God values. In the same way that in your vehicle, there is a a manual that rests in your glove box. 
I heard of a woman that was driving a, a VW Bug. I think it was Alistair Begg that shared this story. And one day she went out to turn the key in the ignition and discovered that the, the VW Bug would not start. And so she went to the manual in her glove box and thumbed through the pages. She went to the front of the vehicle and she opened the hood and discovered that there was nothing there. So she concluded, the problem with my car is that I don't have an engine. Around that time, there was another person that came up beside her, another woman with a VW bug, and says, ma'am, is there a problem? And she says, yes, there is a problem. I I turn the key in the ignition. It doesn't start because I have no engine in my car. And the second woman who was driving a VW bug says, I've got great news for you. Just last week, I, I popped the trunk in my vehicle and discovered I have an extra engine, and and you can use that one. So what we want to do, loved ones, is we want to be able to return to the manual that God has given to us, and the manual is His Word, and we're just reducing it now down to these Ten Commandments during this summer. The first thing that I want to say to you this morning is we want to introduce the law. The second thing we're going to do is explain this law And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to apply this law. So let's begin with introducing the law to you today. It says here in chapter 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words. I think we ought not to miss sight of that. All of Scripture is inspired by God and is God's Word, but let us play careful attention to these words in verse 1, that God spoke all of these words. It is the Creator, the one who has made us, the one who is informing us on how to live a joy-filled or optimal life. These are His very words. I was listening to the late... Tim Keller this week, and he was speaking on the topic of obedience. The word obedience in the Greek has two different Greek words. There's the word under, to be under, and the second word is to hear. So obedience is is allowing another person to have their will imposed on ours. I don't know what you think of that, but sometimes what we do is we will actually hire a personal trainer. And they will say, meet me at the gym at 5.30 in the morning. And at about 4.45 or 5 o'clock, we are saying to ourselves, I do not want to wake up. I want to continue to sleep this morning. But the words of that personal trainer will override our will. And we'll say, because of that personal trainer, I will get up. And I will report to the gym at 5.30. And when you arrive, the personal trainer says, what I need you to do now is I need you to do 10 reps on this machine. And you say, I can only do eight. But you give yourself over to the will of the instructor and you actually do 10. And then the instructor tells you what you need to do is you need to go on this treadmill for 20 minutes. And you tell your personal trainer, I can only do 18. But because you've given yourself over to the will of another, you actually do 20 minutes. When it comes time to physical training, we have no problem actually paying someone to tell us things that we don't want to do and we will obey them. But we don't always carry that same thought process into 
how we live morally. We have this mindset in our culture of what is right for me is right for me, and don't you dare infringe on what I believe. As long as my thoughts don't hurt you, then allow me to believe what I want to believe. But when we look here at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, it says, And God spoke all those words. And so God's words carry weight. And we are to allow His will to override our will. Obedience is not agreement with God or another. Obedience is saying, I will follow what you want me to do, even if I don't understand or agree. This is what we see here, is that we want to obey what God tells us. The second thing, by way of introducing the law, is that the law reveals God's character. You see it in verse 2, where he said, I am the Lord your God. In each of these commandments that we will work through the summer, we will see that as we unpack one law or one commandment at a time, we will see God's character displayed. In the first commandment that we will cover this morning, you shall have no other gods before me, we will see that one of the qualities of God is that he is a jealous God. In the same way that a a man who is lovingly devoted to his wife will feel threatened if that wife is being hit on by another man and he will defend his wife to that man, God will not allow us to be hit on by these other gods. And he will defend and he will say, I will not let you pursue these other gods. This great God of ours is the creator. He is the one who met with Abraham and called him out into a new land. And he told him from him he would establish a nation. And that was passed down to his son Isaac and passed down to his son Jacob. And he is the one who has delivered the people from Egypt. This is who God is. This is what he tells them there in verse 2. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The third thing we can see here in this passage by way of introducing the law is that the law has multiple purposes. Now, there are several of them, but there are three primary ones that we tend to hit on. So let me give you those. The first is that the law restrains sin. I appreciate the law. We've been in a season over the last several months of teaching one of our sons how to drive. And so we've been reviewing the law and the traffic laws. And I'm grateful that when you come up to Lombardi and military, that we all agree what the green light and the red light and the yellow light means. I'm grateful that there are signs posted of speed suggestions, I mean speed limits, that tell us how fast that we are to go. I'm grateful as a sportsman that there are bag limits to how many fish you can keep and how many deer you can kill, because then it shares that with everyone else. So law limits or restrains sin. The second thing we see in the scriptures is that the law reveals sin. I'm convinced that the average person, if they were asked on the streets of Green Bay, why is it that God gave us the Ten Commandments? They would likely say, well, the Ten Commandments are like a large hill or a mountain that we start at the base. And the Ten Commandments are our steps 
in order to get into a relationship with God so that when we die, we realize that we are good enough to go to heaven with him for eternity. But that is false. The Ten Commandments actually give the opposite effect to us. They actually reveal how sinful we are and that we cannot even take the first step because our righteousness falls flat. In fact, the Ten Commandments reveal to us how we need a Savior. Several years ago, Melody and I were living in Michigan, and, and we went on a Friday night downtown, and, and while we were there, we, we saw that they were having this big 10-mile race the next day called the Crim. And Melody and I looked at one another and said, I'm in pretty good shape. You're in pretty good shape. How about tomorrow we run this 10-mile race? It seemed like a good idea to us. And so we figured that that race would prove how good a shape we were in. But when we did that 10-mile race, it proved how poor shape we really were in. I can recall that Saturday afternoon coming home with every muscle in my body aching and literally crawling into bed until the pain would subside. And the law has a similar effect. We think it's going to prove how good we are, but it actually proves how sinful we are. Here's a third purpose of the law, and that is it guides us. I want to remind you of the context here of what it says. God is not telling his people that in order to be delivered, they must keep the law. They have already been delivered. Now he is asking them to keep that law. Look again what it says in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. We could go to the chapter 19 and we will see it more clearly in verses 4 and 5 where he is saying to them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on the eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. What he is saying to them is don't follow these Ten Commandments in order that I would deliver you. You've already been delivered. Now as you are walking in the freedom that I provided for you, follow these. These will serve as guides to you. I think it was Martin Luther that said that the law serves as a club. When we compare our lives to the the law, it beats us up. And it exposes how sinful we are. And it knocks us to our knees so that we are humbly seeking out the Savior that can save us from our sins. And then when we've placed our faith and turned from our sins in Jesus, that club turns into a cane that then guides us into the ways of the Lord. We would walk in His ways in the same law as He provides the grace to do that. So there is introducing the law. Now let's get into the first commandment in verse 3. Let us take some time in explaining the law. Let's read it again. You shall have no other gods before me. This would be an easy verse for you to commit to memory this week. And I would just urge you to do that and meditate on it. So as we think about this commandment, there's a number of statements I'd like to make about this. The first is that this law is not only for a group, but it's also for an individual. This is probably a situation in which 
the older translations will help us more than the modern translations because of that word thou. When we see the word thou, I think that we understand the way that it is intended. It's not intended to be conveyed to a sea of hundreds of thousands of people, although it is. But the word thou, I think, implies that it is to each individual person. And that is the intention of this word in verse 3 that is let off. The word you here in my translation is the second person singular. So let me just make it very clear to you today that these commandments and this commandment number one is not specifically for the person on your right or left or this congregation in general, but it is for you. God is speaking to you today. In fact, if you would like, this is what I would have done. You you could say, Chad, or your first name, shall have no other gods before me. To make it more personal. To not let yourself off the seat here. This is a word that you are being commanded today. You shall have no other gods before me. The second word or phrase I would offer under explaining the law is that these gods are not only empty, but they're demonic. The Bible does not beat around the bush when it comes to talking about false gods or idols. Let me read to you some verses here. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 7. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throats. Speaking of gods, in Isaiah 44, verse 18, it says, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Or Isaiah 45, verse 5, that says, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. This is what the Bible says about these false gods. Paul even made it more specific when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So when people are offering up sacrifices to pagan gods, what Paul would say is there's no other gods, there's no real gods. They're actually offering up these sacrifices to demons. Someone might meditate on this verse, verse 3, where it says you should have no other gods before me. And perhaps they would conclude, well, this doesn't seem to be forbidding gods in our life, but what it is saying is that of all the gods in our life, God must be supreme. But that is not at all what this is saying. The word before me can be translated before my face. What God is saying, you cannot bring other gods into my presence. Here's another statement. These gods are not only visible, but invisible. In Bible times and in our day, there are people that will have these little idols. Then they are physical it could be massive statues. It could be little uh, figurines like this of which people will bow down and worship. 
As a church family, we have been going to Senegal for the last couple of years. And when we go to Niamun Island to hope to bring the gospel there, to disciple people, to see a church that is established there, likely when you go, you will see that there are idols that are, are hanging from trees. And you might, like I, the first time you see that, say, man, these people are so primitive. They lack sophistication that they actually believe there's something to worshiping these idols. But if you're like me, it won't be long, and that thought will give way to a thought about your own life. That I might not worship a a physical idol, but there are all sorts of other idols that I have. It was D.L. Moody who said, You don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you make most of is your God. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. Here's this thought that the Bible assumes that there are idols in our life. We are like Rachel in Genesis chapter 31, where her husband Jacob has come, and now they are finally going back to his homeland. And what does Rachel do? She packs her household gods with her and brings them with We worship gods before we came to our faith in Christ. And loved ones, we bring those gods with us into our relationship with Christ as well. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, gave us a list of some of these gods. He said, there's the God of the estate. That is our material possessions. We think that they will provide security and status. He offered another God, the God of pleasure, that is driven to chase the euphoria of the temporary high brought on by sex or alcohol or drugs or even entertainment that can provide a momentary escape. He talked about the God of our belly, that filling our bellies with fine-tasting drinks and wine, perhaps even daydreaming about the next meal. Thomas Watson said that our children can actually be gods to us. Just yesterday morning, on my way to church, I was pumping gas at a local gas station, and I was admiring a man's Harley Davidson. And I, I, I got into a conversation with him, asking him about his bike and his history of, of riding motorcycles. And I said this, this slipped out of my mouth. I said to him, well, I'm, I'm kind of in this stage of life where I have these, these boys, these children, and they are my life. I'm like, did I really mean that? (laughs) Because isn't God supposed to be my life? Not that I am worthy of adding to Thomas Watson's list, but there certainly are more gods that we face. The, the, The God of a relationship, old Dean Martin used to sing, you're nobody till somebody loves you. And it's possible that your God is having someone that is always attracted to you or you are insisting on being in a relationship and that's where you gain your value. I tell you, a God that I have is comfort where I can continually gravitate towards the area of least resistance. There's a God of being liked that you can worship at the altar of people's opinion of you. There's the God of the body back to the fitness center where people are all about wanting to look good 
and taking whatever necessary supplements because their identity is wrapped up on how they look. There's the God of achievement that a person can give themselves over to degrees and honors and promotions. There is a God of certainty where we operate best when we're in control with no surprises, that when the unexpected happens, then we're given over to irritation and worry. Another statement here under this commandment is we not only worship these gods, but we also serve them. The old folk singer Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. And here's the reality, is that God created us as worshipers. And we will worship someone or something. And what this commandment is prohibiting is for us to worship anything else but God himself. Well, I wonder what God you might be tempted to follow, to serve, and to worship. Let me give you a few different tests. Philip Ryken offered two of these tests, and then I'll give you a third test by a woman, a man by the name of William Temple. Here's one test. What is it that you love? What is the focus of your desires? Because of our fallen nature, we have to fight against this love that we have for the world. A love for worldly success and money and even sex outside of marriage. Is this what you are driven to pursue? Here's a second test. What is it that you trust in? Do you trust in your own wisdom or ingenuity to get out of your problems? Or do you trust in your own investments and wealth to meet your needs? Or do you trust in God? Here's a third test, and that is, what do you daydream about? Tim Keller said, the things that you daydream about in your spare time are often the things that have captured your imagination, and so are the things that you serve. William Temple said, Your religion is what you do with your solitude. And oftentimes, we don't really know what our gods are until our Heavenly Father permits crisis in our life. Over the last couple of years, our family has been able to take some road trips on the East Coast or West Coast, and we've learned something called the tide. We know a lot about that living in the Midwest. But there are times in the day where the tide is in and, and the water is high. But then there are other times in the day where the water goes out and you see the shoreline for what it really is. And suffering can allow the tide to go out in our life to see what we are really holding on to. So when we worship our estate, it proves how foolish we are when the market crashes. When we worship the God of pleasure, Often we are left bankrupt and penniless. When we worship the God of our belly, it contributes to long stays in the hospital and and we are just unhealthy. The God of our family is unable to deliver and they disappoint and crush us. A breakup in a relationship leads to identity crisis. Our insatiable thirst for comfort keeps us from obeying God and from his blessings. We are ruined when we hear someone has criticized us or our ideas. We injure our bodies and are unable to go work out. And so our muscle turns to flab, leading to despondency. 
And when we don't get the promotion, or we're overlooked for that leading role, or we're not voted in as all-conference, we are crushed. And what we will see is that these false gods continually lie to us. They cannot promise what they have delivered. They abuse us. I found myself in the second row this morning as we were singing these songs, jealous for God, thinking that we often will listen to the lies of these false gods and thinking that they can deliver to us what they promise, but they actually abuse us. We probably all know of someone that it has been in an abusive relationship. And we're asking, oh, I wish they would get out. And they would go to a person, a man that could really love them the way that they are intended. And I believe that's what God would think of us when we go to these false gods. They're being abused. and How I desire for them to come to me and I will love and protect them the way that they are supposed to. And if you're listening to this message and you're considering these different tests as we work through some of these gods and you're asking yourself, I don't think I worship or serve any of these gods. It could be that you are a god unto yourself and that you are doing what you want to do and no one is telling you, not even any false gods of what to do, but God is not the ultimate authority in your life. So then thirdly, let us apply this law. The first thing we can do is we are to identify and confess your false gods. Yesterday I went home at lunch and my wife Melody asked, how's the sermon prep going? And I said to my wife, well, to be perfectly honest, I spent a good portion of my morning on my face confessing the gods that I have been following. And I've been lied to, and they haven't delivered the things that they have promised. And so I've spent my time identifying and and renouncing them. And here's the wonderful promise. It's the verse that we read just a little while ago, that not only is our worship to be exclusive, but so is our salvation. Remember what Acts 4 verse 12 says, And there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our worship of God is to be exclusive. And the only way that we can be saved when we violate this commandment is through the exclusivity of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He is the only one that can deliver us from these abusive gods. And that is exactly what he has done. So we identify them, we confess them, we return to our one true God. Let me give you a second way you can apply this, is we have to mock these gods. I won't go into this, but you can look this up in Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20. And we can look, look at the different gods that, that we are drawn to, and we can say to them, you promised me my identity. You promised me comfort. You promised me success. You promised me pleasure. But you have failed me. And I am not returning to you again. You are foolish. I will insist by the grace of God to pursue God and God alone. 
And that leads me to the third way to apply this law is to pursue God alone. You see, each of these Ten Commandments can not only be stated in the negative, you shall have no other gods before me, but can also be stated in the positive, which is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you will need God's strength to do this. This strength is made available to you when you trusted Christ to save you and this gospel power and the Holy Spirit entered your life and you will say to him, I want to live only for you. I do not want any other gods before me. This is the way you have designed me to live, to have exclusive worship for you. This is the fulfilling life you have called me to. Help me. Help me to obey this. This morning, as I wrap this message up, I've asked for a person within our congregation to actually share their testimony of a time as they were going throughout life, like they were involved in a church, and they were brought to a moment of crisis. I might say this, where the tide had went out into their life, and they found out, were they really trusting God? Was he really the one true God in their life? Let's hear how this message was applied in at least one of the members of our church. Dan, would you come at this time? This is Dan Van Stratton. Thank you, brother. I brought some notes because you said to keep it less than 50 minutes. (laughs) My story starts sophomore year high school, specifically halfway through sophomore year high school. A new family moved into our neighborhood, and that very first day that this girl sat on the school bus across from me, I went home that night and told my mom and dad I had met the girl I was going to marry. The first year of our relationship was rocky, partially because I think she didn't know my name, and the the other part was she didn't know she was my girlfriend. But as time went on and as I stalked her, I, I mean became her best friend, we did everything together. I, I became her best friend, and so we did lots of things together except dating. You see, she wouldn't date me because I wasn't saved, and I didn't understand that at that time. But because I wanted to spend time with her and be with her all the time, I started following her to Campus Life. It was a short period of time at Campus Life when I realized that I wasn't saved and that I needed a Savior and that Uh, what Jesus had done for me on the cross, and so I accepted him as Lord as my Savior. Short time later, we waited until we were fully matured, a year out of high school, 19 years old, we got married. Four years later, our first daughter came along, and two years after that, our son was born. We were living life. We were living the Christian life. We were going to Bible preaching church. We were uh, involved in the church and in the youth ministry. We were, doing, we were doing the Christian life. We were living the Christian life. One day I was at work. Uh, I was at work because she babysat kids, extra kids at home, so I stayed at work. <laughs> and uh, she called me and she said, uh, Josh, our son is not doing well. I need to take him to the hospital. You need to come home. And I'm kind of oblivious to this. I go home and I start watching these kids and she goes off to the hospital with Josh. Well, it was shortly after she arrived that they admitted him. 
And uh, I was able to then send the kids home with their parents and whatnot and go up to the hospital by her. And as we sat there and watched our son lay in the hospital bed, they had an oxygen tank over him and needles in him everywhere. The doctor told us they had a very, very severe case of spinal meningitis. He was 10 months old. No? 10 months old? Okay. 13. (laughs) And four hours. Anyway, um, as we sat there and and looked at him and and realized what was before us and we're meeting with the doctor, and and I remember Connie saying right straight out to the doctor, said, can he die from this? And the doctor said yes. And there was no yes but. There was no yes but he's in good care. There was no yes but we caught it early. There's no yes. It was just yes. So that night when we went home, I, I struggled. I struggled severely with God, why? We're, we're, we're living the Christian life. Why, why is this? Why does, why does this? Why does the tide go out? Why did I see this? And it was that night that, you know, that still small voice in your head, maybe it's from getting hit by too many two by fours, maybe it's the, the Holy Spirit, but he, he just said, Dan, who, who's, who's Lord of your life? Who's, who's in control? If, if, if you believe in me, then, then you believe in me. Who is the Lord of your life? And that night, through, through great struggle, I, I'm not saying it was easy, I had to turn over my son to the Lord. I had to realize that, look, if the Lord takes him, the Lord takes him. He belongs to the Lord, not to me. It was, it was truly a struggle. And that small, that night... I had to let him go. For seven years, we've been going through the motions. We were living the family dream. We were in good Bible preaching church. We had lived the Christian life. The Lord chose not to take Josh. He's with us today. As a matter of fact, he drew those plans that you saw on the board. He's excelled in math and whatnot. But what a night, what a night to have lived through. And it brought me to this verse. Um, you all know it. Say it with me. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean out of your own understanding. It was a special night. It was a night when you really realize who you are in the Lord and what you are. I would stand before you and say it's a great thing to be saved. It's a great thing to have accepted the Lord and know your salvation and be assured of your salvation. But is he Lord of your life? The Lord is jealous. I find myself jealous for you as well. Relinquish the gods of our life. They are false. They are empty. They are wounding you. Turn to the one who has saved you, who has delivered you. It is through Christ. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word today. A very short little verse. But all the other commandments rest on this truth. That we are to love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And as we work through these Ten Commandments throughout the summer, 
may we do ongoing inventory of the false gods that are trying to emerge and raise themselves up to prominence in our life. May we feed ourselves on your word. May there be an ongoing crying out to you. May we be renewing our mind to see the lies that these things are telling us. And may we truly find our salvation in that one name that is above every name, Christ. He is the one who our identity rests in. He is the one that will never forsake us. And it is by his death and resurrection that we've entered into this relationship and that he will see us through for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never turned from yourself or turned from the gods, I would urge you to do that today. What does that look like? There is one true God. He loves you. He has sent his son to save you from your sins. He died on the cross. Trust him today and him alone to save you. The altar here as we sing this song will be opened. Maybe you're like me. I say, I want to get these things sorted out. I want to abandon these things. and I want to seek the Lord alone in my life. Not only this morning, this afternoon, this evening, but through my life. Help me, Lord, to do that. And perhaps you would say, I've been swindled. I've been duped by some of these false gods. And I want to worship him. I don't want any other God to be before the one true God of the scriptures. Let's have a time of just prayer and singing this as we sing this song of invitation. Stand with me, please.